heading out, I want to invite the rest of us to open up our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible that's there in the pew that you can use. That Bible is yours to keep, by the way, if you don't have a Bible. Or if you have someone in your life you want to put a Bible in their hands, that's for you to take. But if you take a moment and open up to 2 Peter chapter 3. Are you there yet? Are you there yet? You remember that question? Are we there yet? Maybe you, maybe you remember your, yourself asking that question a lot as a child. Or maybe like me, you've come full circle and now you find yourself hearing that question as an adult. Are we there yet? Are you there yet? Inherent in the, way, in the question is this idea of waiting, this tension of waiting, right? And here's the thing, wherever we are in life, wherever you are in life this morning, we're always waiting for something. For something or someone to come. For something to be done. As a child, as children, right? We can't wait to grow up. And then as so-called grown-ups, we can't wait until we can retire. For when we can stop working and play again. Are we there yet? In response to this question, are we there yet? Or any derivative of it. I used to have a friend whose mom, whenever you had asked a question about waiting, are we there yet, right? I had a friend whose mom always used to say, right on cue, good things come to those who wait. And I rarely wanted to wait to find out if she was right. They say patience is a virtue, right? They say patience is a virtue. Well, if patience is a virtue, most of us could use more of it. Because waiting does not come easy for any of us. We get frustrated when things don't come as quickly as we desire them to. Our patience wears thin with people who don't seem to get it. Even though we explain it to them again and again. When people don't move as fast as we want them to, we lose our patience even as we grow more impatient. How does that old tongue-in-cheek prayer go? Lord, give me patience and give it to me now. The waiting, as the song goes, can be the hardest part. Are you there yet? Second Peter chapter 3. See, Peter today wants to talk to us about the challenge of waiting. Specifically, our struggle with patience, particularly when it comes to the Lord. So I invite you, with those Bibles open, and keep them open after we're done reading. Second Peter chapter 3, as we hear Peter say, offer us this word. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it is, as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, 
dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And my friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Are we there yet? Do you remember? And if you weren't with us, just last week, Paul was talking about false teachers, false teaching in the church. And here it's, he's still developing what it's all about. You see, what's happening is the patience of the church is being tested. Specifically, there's, there's a be, play being done on a growing concern within the church about the return of Jesus. One generation has died since Jesus ascended. He came and went, and another one, the next one, isn't getting any younger. So what exactly is different, argues these false teachers. As Paul, as Peter puts it down, even our ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. The first temptation we can face in our impatience with God, beloved, is to give in. The first temptation we can face in our impatience with God is to give in. You can hear these teachers talking from the way Peter describes it. Aren't you tired of waiting for Jesus? Look around you at what is happening. All the violence, all the persecution, all the death. Nothing's changed. Nothing will ever change. It's eerie how contemporary that argument sounds. And you see, the way that these false teachers are suggesting that we deal with the problem of waiting is to convince ourselves that there's nothing to wait for. There's no need to wait because, as they argue, the world never changes. Time marches forward and the world spins madly on. Things happen, but not due to any dramatic intervention from above. Life is what you make of it. So make something of your life. Stop wasting your time waiting for Jesus to come back. Stop depending on God to shape and form your life. Just give in. But if you have those Bibles open, and I hope you do, Peter says those who are being impatient, those who are giving in, are just following their own evil desires. You see, if we think, if we believe the world will continue as it is forever, that nothing ever changes, then giving in becomes our license for indulging our lusts. And there are many things that we can lust after, but typically it comes back to the big three. If we give in and believe that nothing's ever gonna change, this becomes our license for indulging our lusts for sex, for money, and for power. You see, if we believe that everyone's in it for themselves, then waiting in line is for suckers. You might as well do whatever you want and take what you can get while you can get it, even if it means exploiting and abusing others. My friends, we live in a world where such an outlook, such a philosophy still exists. It still guides the decisions and actions of many, even if it is unconsciously. We're all about instant gratification. We are, I, I told you last week when you watched the Super Bowl to watch the commercials. And there were some really interesting commercials, by the way. <laughs> But many of the commercials came back to the same thing. Your instant gratification. Because we're all about instant gratification. Instant gratification is the impulse that feeds our egos. 
It hardens our hearts. Instant gratification leads and keeps us in our addictions. We can become so consumed with the immediacy of right now that we easily forget what just happened, where we were yesterday. And living for today, don't mishear me, is a good thing. Living for today is a good thing unless we become so preoccupied with what is right in front of us that we start to live as if there is no tomorrow. Peter's counter to this claim that nothing ever changes, that God has never done anything, is to have us step back and look at the very universe we find ourselves in. The world around us, the one we experience with our senses, Peter calls the earth, and the unseen spiritual realm that Peter also describes, the heavens, have not always been there. Peter reminds us that things haven't always been going on and on unchanged. The clock started at some point. Peter reminds us all that time, the very understanding, the nature of time is, that we have, the universe that we live in, was brought into being by God's creative word. And ever since, time and time again, God has intervened in this world in direct and dramatic ways. Peter specifically recalls one time when God intervened in judgment, when the world we once knew perished, except for the eight who were saved, and the world was recreated. Fast forward ahead to the cross, fast forward ahead to the cross, and we realize God has spent everything changing things. He's reconciled all persons to himself in Jesus Christ. You see, for Peter, Noah and the great flood isn't just a nice little story to tell the Sunday school children about a floating zoo. It's a sign that things have not always remained as they were. It's proof that the Lord is changing things and will in the end, not with water, as Peter writes, but with fire, burn away what is old. Burn away what is sinful. Burn away what is dead and bring about a new heavens and a new earth. Those who think, those who give in as if there are no consequences, that a reckoning, a righting of the world will never come, are gravely mistaken. Beloved, in our impatience with the Lord, we cannot give in because to give in is to surrender. And it's to surrender not to God, but to surrender to our own will, our own whims, our own wishes. Giving in is doing what we want to do. Giving in is living for ourselves. And that means living for ourselves, whether that we're living in terms of what's in it for me and grabbing all that we can. It's also living for ourselves if it means playing it safe and keeping our heads down and becoming less than we were intended to be. Either way, whether we're being arrogant or whether we're just running scared, giving in is living for ourselves, and that means living apart from God. And as Peter tells us here and elsewhere, repeatedly, there are consequences for living apart from God. There is judgment. That's sort of fallen out of fashion in the church these days because we haven't always expressed it fully, biblically. But make no, make no, there's no denying there is judgment. There's the judgment that we experience in our day-to-day -day lives. The judgment of the Lord we experience in our day-to-day -day lives is God leaving us to our own devices. God not forcing himself upon us, but leaving us to our own devices. And that means stuck in our bad habits, trapped in unhealthy rhythms, 
The immediate consequence of living apart from God is that immediate judgment of being stuck and trapped in some of the places that we find ourselves. But there is also a final judgment. The resolution of all things when Jesus returns. And when Jesus returns, hear this, there are only two outcomes. Again, we live in a world and we live in times when we love to bandy about about how much gray there is in the world. And there's a lot of gray in the world. But when Jesus comes to resolve all things, the gray goes away and it's black and white. And there are only two outcomes when Jesus returns. Peter describes it, destruction for the ungodly, for those who refuse to wait and just give in, and salvation for those who have waited upon the Lord and depended upon Christ. Again, we don't, it's not, we don't like to talk about that. Some of us, it, it freaks us out. Some of us, it riles us up. We don't like to think about that reality. But just because we don't like to think about it doesn't mean it's not gonna happen. And sometimes hearing news like this, even having to wrestle with it in scripture, we can easily fall victim to the second temptation in waiting upon the Lord. We can give in, but we can also give up. Peter describes these false teachers as mockers, scoffers. And scoffing or mocking God is not so much to reason against the truth of God as it is to disdain, to belittle that truth. And in this case, they're belittling, disdaining, specifically the Lord's timing. Peter tells us, they say, where is this coming, he promised. And a little later in our passage, Peter unpacks what's behind this question. The charge against God is God is slow to act. Where is this coming, he promised. It's been 70 years since Jesus ascended into heaven. How much longer are you going to wait, the mockers ask. The temptation to give up comes when our perception of God's slowness to act, the Lord's de delay, is equated with a lack of concern for us or for this world. We can be tempted to give up because we start to believe God doesn't care. But Peter reminds us, again, I hope you have those Bibles open, best part, last two verses, Peter reminds us it's all a matter of perspective. Don't forget, Peter says, what Moses once told us in Psalm 90. How Moses reframed how we perceive time when he wrote, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Need to be careful here, brief aside. Moses and now Peter are not giving us a rubric a conversion factor for predicting and counting the days until Christ's return. This is important because often in the history of the church, we've taken this one verse used in two different places, and this has become our basis for trying to calculate a date which we're not going to be able to know. Very important, and this is a great reason why we're in our Bible, if it's open, notice neither of them write a day to God is a thousand years. Our Bible say when it comes to the Lord, a thousand years are like a day. This is metaphorical language. The point is our perception of time is not the same as God's. Seventy years for those who, to whom Peter's writing, more than 2,000 years for us may seem like a long time. But in the span of eternity, the Lord's timing is much different. And I think in a small way we can relate to this shift in our perception of time. I mean, have you ever noticed how time can seem very slow or very fast depending on what you're doing? It can go very quickly, or at least you hope it does if you're on a roller coaster. 
Or it can go very slowly if you're sitting in the DMV or the dentist chair. Our perception of time is different when we're on the waiting end of things versus the doing end of things, right? When we're on the waiting side, people can't move fast enough for us, right? But when we're on the doing end of things, we get frustrated when people push us too fast and aren't patient with us. God's promises, Jesus' return may seem slow in coming, and so we may want to give up. But Peter reminds us, the prophets testify, the time is coming. Jesus himself assured us, though the hour is unknown, the day is certain. We shouldn't, we can't give up. We just need to look at God's timing in a new way. The question isn't what are we waiting for. The question we need to ask ourselves is what is God our Father waiting for? What we perceive as a delay, a lack of concern or care for us, Peter writes is just the opposite. As we continue to grow impatient with God, believing the Lord to be slow in working, Peter writes, God our Father is actually demonstrating his patience towards us. And while he doesn't go on to explain the reason for the seeming delay in Jesus' triumphal return, Peter does reveal specifically how and why God is patient with us. Our Father doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So the delay in Jesus' return is not an indication of God's indifference or distance from us, it's a demonstration of the Lord's deep concern, his infinite patience with us. The bottom line is Christ hasn't returned for his bride yet because she's not entirely finished. Like a painter outside of a painting. We're in time, but our creator is outside of time. And the masterpiece of the church is not yet complete. God hasn't missed some cosmic deadline for the end of the world as we know it. No, our Father is merciful, passionately patient in desiring that none would be left on the outside looking in, that all would turn around, believe and follow Jesus home. Peter wants us to hear this. The Lord is patient, willing to let his purposes be worked out for you and through us. We can't and we shouldn't give up because, in other words, the Lord refuses to give up on us. If you're here this morning, if you're, you're someone this morning who's still wrestling with God, if you still are, are here this morning and you're stuck in the unanswered questions you have, bitter in your disappointments due to what you see as God's delay or inaction, I want to encourage you, based upon Peter's words, to take a different point of view. Recognize instead God's patience in bearing with us as we remain slow in fully responding to his peace offering of forgiveness, his precious gift of grace, his blood oath promise of eternal life. God is patient with us. He's giving us time. But if you're that person today, I'm going to encourage you not to play hard to get. I can't tell you, and... and, and, and <laughs> This is the hardest part for me to say in this sermon because I, wanted, I want to tell you I'm making this stuff up because it's hard for me to hear and it's hard for me to repeat. I can't tell you how often I've heard people say, and when I say these things, I would love to say, oh, it's just out there. It's in here and out there. It's in the community and faith and outside. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, you know, it's early yet. I got plenty of time. 
Yeah, you know, I'll think about God. Yeah, maybe tomorrow. Yeah, you know, I believe in Jesus. Yes, yeah, yeah, I come to church. Yeah, but I'll get right with Jesus later. I got time. You know, maybe, you know, I'll, I'll repent on my deathbed. That's kind of my, my, my last, you know, that's, what, that's my last effort there. I'm, and I'm not making this up. I mean, that blunt, that just and I, brutally honest. Our Father is patient with us. But my friends, the time is short and life is fragile. Sickness, tragedy, death can come on us very suddenly and unexpectedly. Don't wait to embrace God's patience. His desire from saving us from perishing, from destroying ourselves or being taken captive by others. But maybe you're another kind of person today. Maybe you're here today and you find yourself impatient wishing Jesus would come now. Like my wife. I'm outing my wife right now. I did this in the first service and I live to tell, so I think I'll be okay the second time around. But there's no, there's no telling. Oh, she's back there. <laughs> my wife and I, if you didn't know, met when we were really, really young, high school. And my wife um, very much believed and and would preach it to me, the return of Jesus. You know, am I, am I ready? And in her passion for the Lord's return, she was convinced that Jesus would come back before she turned 30. And when that didn't happen, certainly the Lord was coming back before she had to experience 40. Needless to say, she's not happy. <laughs> All kidding aside, some of us may be here today impatient, wishing Jesus would come now. If we're here and we, 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 can, we would confess that we're tired of waiting for Christ to return as we live in the brokenness of this world, maybe we need to learn to watch the clock and to read the calendar differently. Instead of being frustrated with all the time we have left to wait, maybe we ought to give a little more consideration to all the time we are being given. Let us recognize, too, God's patience with us in giving us all the time we need to pray, to serve, to bring others to share in the joy of repentance, the freedom of forgiveness, the security of unconditional love and the hope of eternal life in Christ. Did you ever stop and think in your impatience that that might be what God's up to? That God's giving you time, not just for yourself, but for what he can do through you, what he desires to do through you. We're all waiting for something. That's where I started. We're all waiting for something. The question is, are we waiting on the Lord for whatever it is? You hear this morning? You end up here, not for baptism, scouts, you didn't know, never been to church in a while, and maybe, maybe you come every week. Are you here this morning dealing with a perceived delay by God in your life right now? Is it unemployment? or underemployment that's lasted weeks, months, maybe even years, and your patience is wearing thin. You're trying to work so hard, but you still can't seem to make ends meet. It's check to check. Or maybe you're here this morning and 
you're really honest, if you share it out loud, you're just not healing quick enough. You're sitting here and you're struggling to get well with this illness that just keeps lingering on, with a cancer or disease that is no longer in remission, with surgeries, therapies, treatments that seem to pile up one on another, and you're just starting to lose your patience. Or maybe you're in a dry spell. What's often been called in the history of the church the dark night of the soul. You struggle to pray. You struggle to sing, to read your Bible, to give, to serve, because the Lord seems so distant, so unresponsive in your life right now. You have so many prayers that seem to go unanswered. Or you have so many prayers that are being answered, but not the way you wanted them to be. Wherever you are in your waiting, are you beginning to ask yourself, what's it all about? Where's this all going to lead? Why is this happening? Why isn't this happening? Does God see? Does God care? How much longer are you willing to wait to find out? Are you being tempted this morning to give in, to give up? Peter's word to us today, as well as tomorrow and beyond, is to hold on and wait patiently. Beloved, don't give in. Don't give up on yourself. Don't give in to a false identity. Man, there are all kinds of labels the world wants to stick on us. For good or for ill, we all have had labels sewn into the fabric of our lives by family and friends. And labels are descriptors, but they are not our identity. You are a child of God. You have been fearfully and wonderfully made. You are here for a reason. You have a purpose. You have a destiny to fulfill. You were not created to live for yourself, but to glorify God. But you glorify God by being true to who he created you to be. And we discover that truth about ourselves and each other in Christ. In Christ. Don't give in. Don't settle for less because you've grown impatient with the journey of discovery. Keep looking to, keep learning from, keep following Jesus. Don't give up on yourself. Don't give in. Don't give up on yourself. I'm not saying when I say don't give up on yourself, I'm not telling you to cut yourself some slack. I'm not telling you to look out for number one. I'm not even telling you to pamper yourself. When I say don't give up on yourself, I'm telling you, don't ever give up on God's loving patience with you personally. God's loving patience with you personally. Remember, the temptation to give in leads to the temptation to give up. And that is the enemy's main tactic. Get this. Hear this, church. The enemy's main tactic is to get us to give up on ourselves. It's hopeless. It's hopeless. It's too embarrassing. It's, it's, it's too bad. It's gone on. You know, no, no, no. It's gone on too long. I, 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 I can't repent. I... I can't be changed. There's not enough time. 
There's been too much time on this. These are the kind of ideas. These are the kind of ideas we start repeating to ourselves. Once we give in and start to believe them, we will eventually give up. Don't give up. You were worth dying for. You have been forgiven. You have been saved by grace. You are not alone. You will not be forsaken. We need to replace the lies with the truth of God's word. That's what Peter keeps telling us. We need to repeat and remember what God says about us and promises to us. And Peter, we've been in two letters now, First and Second Peter, and if you want, go back to the first chapter of his first letter and the first chapter of his second and read and let it sink in who you are, who we are in Christ. My friends, God is not just patient with a world of sinners. God is patient with you. Peter says we have a God who doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And this sacrament before us today, this sacrament that we come to week after week is proof positive that God is not only giving and forgiving, but that God is patient with you, with me, with us. Don't ever give up on yourself. And don't give up on others. Don't give up on others. It's easy, right? I mean, it's easy to grow impatient. Oh, man, to find ourselves frustrated with the people nearest to us, the ones we love. We love them so much we could kill them, right? They don't know Jesus. They don't want to know Jesus. They don't care about the choices they're making and the consequences of those choices in the overall picture of their lives, let alone God's kingdom. They used to trust in Christ walk with Jesus. They were once connected to the body of the church, but not anymore. They resist the faith. They avoid the church. They may even mock or scoff at what we believe and how we live. For you this morning, it might be a spouse that, you're, that we're talking about. It might be a child. It could be a friend. It could even be a parent. No matter what they say, no matter what they do, no matter how long it's been, no matter how many times you've had the same argument, no matter how afraid or angry or fed up you are, don't give up on them. Remember, Peter writes this letter as one whom Jesus never gave up on. Right? I mean, despite repeatedly saying the wrong thing, to the point of denying Jesus three times, even cursing and swearing he didn't know Jesus. Jesus never gave up on Peter. Again and again, he was lovingly patient with Peter, always seeking reconciliation. Don't give up on anyone. Don't give up on anyone, even your greatest adversary or enemy. Peter himself saw when he watched Jesus deal with Judas decades before he wrote this letter, Jesus never gave up on Judas, the one who betrayed him. Even though Jesus knows Judas will betray him and that nothing practically will stop him, still, Jesus loves 
Judas deeply. He patiently and desperately keeps warning Judas. He won't stop. Even in that moment of betrayal, betrayal through a kiss, Jesus called Judas friend. Judas gave up on himself, but Jesus never gave up on him. Peter wants us to know that's the way Jesus always is, even today. And my friends, if God doesn't ever give up on anyone, why should we? How can we? Don't you dare give up on anyone, ever. But most of all, don't give up on God. Don't give up on God. I know it's hard. I do, I do, I do. But resist putting the Lord on your timetable. We can get so impatient. This is taking too long. This is never going to happen. Don't be anxious when the Lord hasn't come through yet. Don't give up when God doesn't explain. You know, it's a funny thing. For me, I don't know for you, is I could tell you right now all the places where I have lost and am losing patience with God, the places where he is just not answering my prayers right now. But what I don't think about, and maybe I should a little bit more, is all the times before when God didn't answer my prayers and I'm really glad he didn't. But at the time, I was convinced I was absolutely sure. I was defiant. Why are you not doing this? Why are you not acting in this way? And I don't know about you, but I have lots of examples I can give where, thank God, you didn't do what I wanted you to do. You didn't answer the way I wanted you to answer. We gotta look back and recognize, maybe for the first time those moments, so that we can believe that God's timing is perfect. We need to learn to trust that what we perceive as the Lord's delay is in fact him giving us or someone else needed time. And I know it's hard. I know some of us are wrestling with really intense things. I'm not making light of it. But my friends, there's no fruit. There's nothing to be gained by fixating on the clock winding down. Don't worry about your number being called. Don't, don't be tempted to hit the panic button or the alarm because you gotta hear this. This is the gospel. With Jesus, there is nothing to fear. With Jesus, there is nothing to fear. Do we believe that, church? And you can't say yes if you're not willing to put your life upon that statement. You don't know it unless you're really willing to step out. With Jesus, there is nothing to fear. In Christ, do you know this? Have you let this seep into your life? In Christ, we will never run out of time because we are being prepared. We are being carried into eternity where there is more than enough time for us all. See, when we start believing in the reality of the other side, that's when we start behaving differently on this side. Don't ever give up on God. If you read this passage closely, if you have your Bible open, you may have noticed this. If you read it closely, you'll, you, you gotta notice an obvious tension in what Peter writes here. If you have it open, I'm gonna describe it to you. On the one hand, Peter tells us that what God desires to happen is that the Lord desires everyone to come to repentance, right? 
But if you go back a little earlier, Peter also describes the destruction of the ungodly when Jesus returns. Let me tell you something. A whole lot of theological ink has been spilled over this section of Scripture, over this tension. I mean, which is it? Does God get what he wants and everyone is saved? Or does everyone have the opportunity to repent and not all will? Are those who repent only the elect, those whom God chose to respond? Or are the elect those who themselves chose to respond? I can't tell you how much ink has been spilled on this, how many words have been exchanged, how many people have been kept up nights by these questions. And I guess what I want to say to you, and I'm just speaking for myself, as a pilgrim and as a pastor, is I wonder why I have to choose. Why do I have to choose? Why do I have to figure this out? Is that the point of what Peter's writing? Is that me learning the lesson that Peter's trying to give, or am I inverting it? I stand before you today, and again, I'm speaking just for me, and I choose instead to be in awe, gobsmacked by a God who loves me so much that he's willing to give me all the time I need to appreciate and share the grace he has given me. I choose instead to stand amazed by this God who is everlasting in his patience with me, even though I lose my patience with him all the time. This God who never gives in and never lets me be the God of my own life and the Messiah in the lives of others that I convinced myself I would be really good for. This God who never gives in and lets me have it my way, my kingdom, my will, even though, even though I'm sure I'm right all the time. But my history tells a different story. I choose to get on my knees in thanksgiving and praise for our God, who even though others have, has never given up on me. No matter how far I've fallen, no matter how distant I make myself, no matter what a fool I've been. My God never throws up his hands. My God never backs away. My God never cuts me off. He's always the same. The same father waiting patiently on the horizon for me. Running towards me when I start heading in his direction. Clothing me in his righteousness, killing the fatted calf for me, and welcoming me home. The waiting can be the hardest part. But I'm not going to give up on myself. I'm not going to give up on anyone. And I'm not going to give up on God because I've got nowhere else to go. There's no one else to turn to. No one else who has the words of eternal life. No one else who has time for me. No one else who can take me, make me into all that I long to be. So I stand before you today and I choose to believe after a long time that my friend's mom, that Peter, my brother, are right. Good things do happen to those who wait. And so I choose to keep waiting on the Lord. How about you? Amen.